Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today I have my normal partner in crime, Medical Director Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And we have a special guest joining us today. We have Noah Martinez uh, from Spokane Fire. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast, Noah. We're not going to give anything away too quickly, uh, but before we get into the case and how you and I took care of this patient together, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, Noah, where you are in your uh, EMS career, and just a little overview of the EMS system there in Spokane. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Doc, and I can't wait to get to this. Um, My name is Noah. I'm a Spokane Valley Fire Department medic. Been a medic for about 11 months. Been with Spokane Valley Fire for almost seven years. Currently, right now, I'm on uh, Valley Engine 7, which runs approximately 3,000 calls a year. One of the busier rigs in the district. Um, We usually run with two EMTs and one medic. And then we have AMR, which is our private ambulance company who does the transport. And we're encouraged to write in on anything critical. So we have good working relationship with them. They usually are one medic and one EMT. And on this current day, I was working with uh, Captain Silsby and a probationary firefighter, Kovac, who's a pretty fresh EMT. What a case for a fresh EMT. That's pretty cool. So for the listeners that don't know, and I don't always share all of my personal life uh, on the podcast, I actually work uh, ER shifts at Providence Sacred Heart Hospital in Spokane, Washington. And so I was on a night shift uh, recently. And just to clear the air, everyone, I actually uh, got clearance uh, from family to discuss uh, this case. So this one has been HIPAA cleared. And this is, if not the most amazing case, at least one of the more amazing cases I've had in my recent memory as an emergency physician. So this is one that from a Monday morning quarterback, our recurring series, this is definitely one we wanted to Monday morning quarterback just mm-hmm. for, it's just, just amazing. There's no other word to describe it. And the cool part about this for the listeners out there is no one knows what happens. I know what happens. But we blinded Dr. Dixon on this one. So he is going to have a, a jaw drop on recorded air, podcast air, for us all to, to hear and visualize what we think that might look like. So let's get into the case. Noah, tell us about the call notes, what you guys got called to, what you saw on the scene, and how you prioritize your decision making. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The call came out about... 15 minutes before 1 a.m., it was about 21 degrees out, kind of cold night in Spokane. Um, The call was dispatched as a fall, not alert on ground outside. Initially, it was a Bravo response, which generates no code, so no lights, no sirens. It got upgraded quickly after that to a Delta for a 70-year-old female, conscious breathing, foaming at mouth. Um, Ground level fall still on the ground, so... From time to dispatch to arrival on scene, it was about five minutes and 31 seconds for us. And AMR was about six minutes behind us. So kind of what we saw when we got there, it was kind of chaotic just initially even pulling up to scene, getting waved in like every medical call it seems like these days where four or five neighbors were out in the yard, which was kind of a unique experience at 1 a.m. The patient was laying on the ground 
in front entry of the front door. She was cold, stiff, unresponsive, and no shivering. She was surrounded by neighbors in the front yard. One neighbor actually covered her with a blanket. Another neighbor started talking about how his dogs were barking and he thought his house was being broke into. So it couldn't have been more than 15 minutes that she was outside. So the other neighbors were talking about how she lives alone, but really didn't know much about her. She had a forward gaze. She was foaming at the mouth. Her arms were straight out in front of her, laying next to her. Almost appeared disturbed posturing, but not quite. She was cold to the touch, covered in a blanket. I did ask one neighbor to go inside and see if he could find any information or if anybody else was inside to give us anything. And he kind of just stood there and stared at me and kept talking about how that was his blanket on her. And he just made sure he got it back at the end of it when we loaded her up. It was There was a lot of a lot happening around the patient at this time. So this is, this is classic EMS, right? You've got a, a hundred distracting elements. You've got a patient with no information. It's the middle of the night. It's freezing cold. I'm going to toss you this one, Dr. Dixon. Where will we take this one when we don't know what's going on? You take it back to the patient. So we've got an altered patient. So where do you run through? Yeah, I run the serial killers. So I think of the altered mental status serial killers, right? So endocrine, seizure, strokes, toxins, uh, some type of uh, CNS or, or just global infectious process is kind of where I would start with this. And then I would add in there, since, since Noah kind of described her and described the elements, you have to bring up environmental. Could it be some type of environment, primary environmental urgent emergency? And maybe we got bad information. Maybe she's been there for more than 15 minutes. We don't really know any more than that now. The other thing I would say is if she was found down like that, just my stock go to, I do a quick uh, primary survey and see, you know, do we have any, any life-threatening injuries? Do we have a pulse right there? And kind of do a little bit more assessment before I, before I moved her. I, I, and as you're going to hear from Noah describing the case, he checked those boxes one by one. So take us through briefly, Noah, your treatment focus and as you progress from the front porch to the truck and how you prioritized and move those different choices up and down your list. Yeah. As Dr. Dixon said, we kind of had those serial killers. We were going back and forth, you know, at first in my mind, I was thinking, okay, 15 minutes, maybe it's a TBI. Maybe she fell and hit her head and that's what's going on. So we immediately took C-spine. We checked her pulse initially when we got there. My captain went inside and see if he could find any more information the daughter was inside and just getting over COVID. So she was unable to give us any information that was helpful in this situation. So when he came back out, we took C-spine, we applied a C-collar, we rolled her and tried to get her off this cold surface. We put a lifting blanket under her. And that was when she made her first kind of grimace when we rolled her and kind of didn't figure out what caused it a grimace at first. But later when we were in the back of the ambulance, her fingertips were actually frozen to the ground. So by rolling her, they kind of ripped her fingertips off the ground. So that's why she grimaced. So I had my captain and immediately get with AMR as soon as they arrived on the scene and said, hey, get the stretcher out. We're going to carry her in. We're going to get her out of the elements as fast as we can. So AMR arrives on scene. Jim's been a medic with AMR for a long time. I think he was in one of the first paramedic programs in the country. So pretty seasoned guy. 
We immediately try to get vitals on this patient. At this point, she's thrashing around with her arms, unable to get a blood pressure, unable to get a pulse ox on her. We try to get a four lead. It's it's kind of chaotic in the back of this ambulance at this point. I have my EMT working on vitals. I grab a line. We get an 18 gauge and a right AC. She rips it out of my hand. We have blood going everywhere at this point. So kind of get a stop on that after we are able to get vitals, baseline vitals, four lead, start warming her, start removing clothes. Her heart rate starts to become bradycardic. And I can't remember the rhythm. I just remember it being sinus brady on the monitor. And we talked about it and we're like, we put the patches on and we're like, if we don't give her atropine, we're probably going to be doing CPR in the back of this bus. Obviously her being out in the cold for a while, we decided to give one milligram of atropine. Heart rate did improve. Unsure if it improved with the atropine or the rewarming, but we went with that and we did end up intubating her just due to airway patency. A little bit of everything with the possible aspiration, possible TBI, low O2 sats. So we went with the Tomidate and Sucks. We innovated her and then we started our transport to you at Sacred Heart Medical Center. So this one was, to, and, and I'll just clarify for the listeners because the call notes like so often in EMS never tell the whole story. This poor soul was not 70 years old. She was 90 years old. So I hear 90 year old found down intubated hypothermic in route. So my mind immediately goes to you know, hypo, hypothermia foundations. What do we need to be watching for? Just like you, I need to look at her cardiac rhythm. You know, does she have perfusion? How bradycardic is she? What we rewarming steps do we need to take? Those were all the pieces of the puzzles that were going through my mind. Before we get to my care, though, there is the important piece that we always have to address here on Monday Morning Quarterback, and that is you get to be critical of me, Noah. So feel free to be honest here. I thought we had pretty pretty smooth transition. We were all taken aback at, at how cold she was. How do you think that went in the ED? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, Being in the back, I completely missed the patch from AMR to you, so I don't even know what you got for a patch. And it sounds like you got the 70-year-old hyperthermic gal, so you were ready for it. But I thought from my end and previous experience, I thought it was smooth, it was quick, and it was efficient. I thought I was really happy that a doctor was in there and present to give the scenario because, as you recalled earlier, EMS scenes are chaotic. I'm trying to get the story, and a lot of the times when you try to give the doctor the story, I don't have the pieces of that puzzle. I just have what I found. So I thought you were really good about it. And then I ended up finding you after you received the patient and talked to her, one of her daughters. And it was nice because I was able to ask you if there's anything that we could have done different or how we could have changed it. And I remember you jokingly said, yeah, show up an hour earlier. And it, it got <laughs> me was, laughing. I was like, <laughs> there was, yeah, there was, I mean, y'all hit, y'all hit all the important pieces. You had a blood glucose, you couldn't control her. You couldn't monitor her. You got her uh, airway uh, and her sedation taken care of. You had full vitals. You had her on, you know, you had her on entitle, you had defibrillator pads on, you addressed her heart rate with both rewarming and atropine. And I would agree with you. Who knows there what the uh, help was? Was it atropine? Was it rewarming? I would say probably rewarming more than atropine, but who knows? When she got to us, she had a pressure. She was oxygenating fine. She had a good, she had a good entitle, but man, she was cold. 
I mean, I put my hands on her foot and I thought she's going to lose both feet, both hands. She's freezing and y'all couldn't get a temperature. She was so cold, which, which happens. Um, so our keys were really the same as your keys. Get the wet clothes off. We got the bear hugger on to externally warm her as quickly possible, as quickly as possible. She was in a relatively reasonable bradycardia to atrial fibrillation and she wasn't terribly bradycardic for me and that's that's really a hundred percent normal in in a severely hypothermic patient um so really my priorities went just to continue rewarming but to try to address you know why she ended up there in the first place and to try to decide on some form of prognostication being that she wasn't the 70 that y'all got passed off as she was 90 nine zero and she was so cold that a rectal thermometer wouldn't read we ended up getting an esophageal probe in and she was 25 degrees celsius she was 75 degrees fahrenheit and esophageal is going to be your most reliable just for perspective sake when we talk about hypothermia mild 35 to 32 degrees celsius shivering usually with normal mental status moderate hypothermia 28 to 32 sometimes you start to lose shivering in there you start to become altered less than 28 we're talking about coma and peri-arrest she was 25. by the time she got to me her blood pressure had improved her heart rate had improved from your initial values that y'all reported on scene but she's 90 and you had no information on scene because the daughter that was there was ill and was not really well enough to give y'all a whole lot. Uh, she had another daughter and another son. So she had three children um, that, that I was aware of. Two of those ended up in the ED. And I was able to get a, a lot more information in that first five to 10 minutes. And honestly, I really didn't take the full warming toolbox into consideration here. I just didn't feel like a 90 year old patient warrants chest tubes or peritoneal lavage or you know consideration for ECMO for sure which are things that we can offer you know severely hypothermic patients who are young with potentially good outcomes I was fairly convinced Noah that you were right that some of that posturing that you saw she was laying out on the on the porch it was slick and icy I thought she had slipped hit her head and was a combined hypothermia TBI that's that's really what I thought that we would find I said, let's, you know, let's give her some sedative. I gave her some, some midazolam. Uh, we continued with some warm fluids. We put the bear hugger on. And then I went to round up the son and the daughter. That was my first order of business. And I said, you know, we can start with these things fairly conservatively. And we can get the son and the daughter's take. Because there was also some word from either y'all with fire or from AMR at some point there was a discussion that she may or may not have been a DNR as well. So mm -hmm. before we go full court press, let's see, let's see what, let's see what her deal is. And so the daughter was beyond kind and insightful and just a super reasonable uh, person to deal with. And she said, you know, mom's functional. She lives alone. She drives. She was up at my house on uh, the North side yesterday. I did her hair for her, but she would not want heroic measures, no shocks, no compressions. <clears throat> She's 90. And so at that point, I thought, okay, that, that sounds 
like a very reasonable take. You know, we want to limit drugs and shocks in patients until they're greater than 30 degrees Celsius. That's sort of a given from a perfusion and, and efficacy standpoint, probably more theoretical than proven. Thankfully, she slowly started to warm. We didn't have any more issues of cardiac arrest or need for CPR defibrillation. And I wanted to clear that hurdle really quick because at 25, I knew even though she was improving for me that she was absolutely peri-arrest still. And we, we went, I went through the same differential that you did. I, you know, we, you guys had a, had blood glucose. I looked for signs of seizure activity, didn't see any. We got electrolytes and looked at her, her sodium. You know, there was no hyponatremia, uh, you know, tox and exposure were definitely on the list. And we knew that hypothermia was playing a role. But what I really wanted to do to guide the next piece of my treatment aggressiveness and sort of decision-making tree was, does she have a big subdural or an epidural ICH, some form of intracranial hemorrhage? And is that going to guide me to say comfort measures one way or the other? How aggressive am I going to be in discussing that with the family? And so I thought 100% we'd get her to the CT scanner and we'd see a big bunch of white where we shouldn't, which would be blood. And sure enough, we get her back from scan and her head CT is clear. And by that point, her blood pressure is a little bit better and her temperature's up over 30 with just external rewarming and, you know, warm fluid, which, you know, both of those are fairly, fairly minimal in invasiveness. So now I've got a 81 year or an 81 degree, 90 year old. What do you think happens, Dr. Dixon? Now I'm going to put you on the spot. 99.99999% of the time. <laughs> She cardiac arrest. I mean, yeah, at some point. Does, does she survive to hospital discharge? I would say no. I would say no. I thought you were going to give does me a she sur- alert and she was looking better, but I feel like something bad's about to happen. Tell me she didn't wake up. <laughs> well, we, well at, that, at that point, I didn't think I had a clear way to say it's comfort measures only. We've got right. a right. solid blood pressure. Yeah. We've got a heart rate up in the 80s. She's she's not actively seizing, and there's no TBI. We start to get some blood work back. Her creatinine is 1.3, which is basically normal. Her CPK, looking for rhabdo and severe rhabdo, was about 500. Her lactic acid was less than two. So her potassium was normal. So signs of severe tissue ischemia and multi-system uh, yeah, organ yeah. failure really weren't there. So her, her labs were surprisingly reassuring. So now, and not that that tells you the whole story, but we've got a normal head CT. We've got reassuring labs. Her, every time I'd go in, she'd go from 81 degrees to 82 degrees. Her, her temperature slowly warmed throughout the ED course. So I call the ICU and I tell the daughter and the son, I said, you know, I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't think your mom has any realistic chance for survival. I was as frank as you could be. And I said, at the same time, it hurts us nothing right now. She's sedated. We're not exerting heroic measures in any new implementation sort of scenario. Let's let's let her go to the ICU like we would a post-ROSC patient. Let's give her 24 to 48 hours. She's very functional. She is very sharp. Let's see if she declares. By the time we got to the ICU, transfer. She was 85 degrees Fahrenheit. She had raised 10 degrees in the ED with passive rewarming. Bear hugger, warm fluids, 
put her on some propofol for sedation. Like I said, very, very mild rhabdo, renal function was fine. And for all the listeners out there who I know are weighted on the edge of their seat, yes, she had Osborne J-Ways. They were there. <laughs> uh, but, you know, she, she still had an absolute grim prognosis to me. So this was on uh, 1 a.m. This was 1 a.m. on Saturday morning. Uh, so my shift are 10 a, or 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. So I was on my basically Friday night into Saturday morning shift. And I got back to the hospital that night, Saturday night. So she had been in the hospital now for less than 24 hours. And I thought, man, I wonder how she's doing. I wonder how I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how her labs trended. I was sure her potassium spiked, her creatinine spiked, her blood pressure tanked. You know, that this was not going to go the right direction. I pulled up the chart and she was extubated. She was extubated and on four liters of nasal cannula oxygen when I got to my shift on Saturday night. And I could not believe it. I talked, like you said, Noah, I talked to you and said, what could you have done differently? You could have gotten her off the ground earlier if you were um, omnipotent and knew what was going on, you could have <laughs> saved her. But that's about it. And when I read the chart, I didn't believe it. This was at the beginning of my shift. And the whole shift, I just couldn't stop thinking about her and, you know, my neuroprognostication, you know, just total whiff. And just about how strong the lady had to be. And the whole shift, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I rarely do this. I don't do it often at all. Uh, but I finished my shift at what would be 6 a.m. on Sunday morning, which would have been you know, just over 24 hours from her, her fall and her event. And on the way out to the car, I took the elevator up to the second floor and followed the signs to the ICU. And I found her in the hospital. And I walked in, I introduced myself and I said, you don't remember me. She said, no, I could have died, couldn't I, doctor? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, they told me I was 75 degrees. Was I 75 degrees? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, I sure am lucky. If you want to go tell everybody about this case, you go ahead and go tell everybody about it. Like she gave me the, the HIPAA clearance, like right through the door. <laughs> and I sat, I sat and talked to her for probably 20 minutes. She was the kindest, sweetest soul. She was going to get to spend Christmas with another Christmas with her family. Uh, she was just, she had, she had worked peripherally in hospitals before. So we talked about shared experiences and she wanted to know everything about what the fire crew did, what the medic crew did, what happened in the ER. She said a million times, I, sh I, sh I should be dead, right? I said, yes, ma'am. I said, I bet against you. And I said, I'm surely not going to tackle you in a, in an alleyway fight because you would, you would whip me good. She was 24 hours later, alert, oriented, GCS of 15 and off oxygen. And she said, doc, I, I want to go home today. And I said, ma'am, you know, I'm not your doctor anymore. I said, I've already been really wrong about you once. So I'm going to let the ICU doctors take over from here. And so I went home and I just, I was so just amazed to be a part of it and happy to be so wrong. Got back to my shift that Sunday night for my last shift in 36 hours from her event, she had been discharged home. So I, it was just, it was just an amazing case to see someone 25 degrees, 90 years old, intubated, sedated, frozen solid, uh, walk out of the hospital 36 hours later uh, with neurointact survival. Just really an amazing case. 
So, Noah, give me your one or two learning points that you took uh, from the case, and then we'll wrap it up with some take-homes. Yeah, I think Dr. Dixon kind of hit it right when, you know, maybe she wasn't outside for more than 15 minutes. Treat the patient in front of you. Try to drown out that outside noise as tough as it may be sometimes and distractions. And then uh, Chief Barrett always says, take a tactical pause. Make sure what we're doing is doing the right thing for the patient and not just what we have our one differential diagnosis going down that route. So those are kind of my takeaways. What do you, what do you think, Dr. Dixon? What would you have? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really great case, guys. And this is a really tough one. I think that as providers and as emergency medicine folks, we're the hardest on ourselves, right? Is that you walk into these things and you're just faced with so little information and so many different opportunities for decision-making. You just got to make decisions. But I'm with Noah. I think sometimes I like that tactical pause. We're going to steal that from you, Noah. I think you do have time to set up a safety net. So whether that's starting an intervention like CPR or putting oxygen on the patient, doing some assessment while you're sorting through these very complex cases and trying to get some more history. So uh, I totally agree. This is a tough one. This is a tough one. Yeah, And I would just close with, you know, we see the bad end of these so often. And I'm going to lump this hypothermic altered patient in with a lot of our cardiac arrests and altered critical patients and just say that there is loads of evidence out there. And I don't want to make this an, an evidence podcast because this isn't, that's not the topic for today, but our neuroprognostication skills and our outcome skills in the initial 10 minutes, 15 minutes, one hour, two hour is not very good. Now I would argue she had a lot going against her. Just her age in general was, was a big one. Uh, but it really made me step back and say, until we have clear definitive evidence, we need to resuscitate, set up that safety net, give people the best chance that we can until we have all of the objective information that we can get before we start to close doors and to close treatment options and to close our minds off. And especially, especially in hypothermic cases, uh, the literature is littered with amazing survival stories uh, from hypothermic situations, whether, you know, immersion, submersion, or just exposure. So definitely a wake-up call for me into not prematurely close on these folks. Let's hit some hypothermia high points just for test-taking consideration and knowledge-based uh, reinforcement, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, we want to minimally move these people. We don't want to jostle them too much. We can lead into arrhythmia situations. The rate is going to improve with warming. Atropine, I don't know that it's ever really a negative in these situations. I would expect rewarming to be more helpful for us. But remember, warm them up, keep them still until we get up over that 30-degree mark. Then we can start working on them. Uh, if they're ultramental status patients, if they've got sonorous respirations, then we're in that altered mental status serial killer range. We need to think about airway patency versus protection like Noah talked about. This patient sounds like from a control and monitoring standpoint, along with sonorous uh, soiled airway patency perspective, that, that intubation was absolutely the right move. Uh, hypothermia falls into that toxin exposure uh, serial killer uh, from the altered mental status serial killer series. These survival stories can be wild. We've already had a, a Texas hypothermia case uh, on the podcast in the past. So 
remember that these patients can can have amazing survival so don't close prematurely don't prognosticate futility too early good communication at changeover even if it's incomplete can lead to better ed clinical decisions and ed outcomes so make sure that you know for the medics that i'm talking to out there i know that it's a one-sided control that you have over that conversation but i would urge ems services as a whole to push our hospital partners and push our ed doc partners uh, to see that same level of importance, uh, train jointly, tabletop exercises, communication, closed loop exercises, put pieces into place so that these changeovers happen in a collegial way that supports patient care and patient advocacy. And just remember, uh, you know, we've got tons of distractions. We've got tons of information flowing in. And, and, and like Noah said, I'm going to leave it with the tactical pause. We, we have to stop and recollect and refocus or that flow of some useful lots not useful information can overwhelm us so i want to commend the uh spokane valley fire medics and crew what a knot for a new emt that was a that was a a banger for him uh the uh, amr crew gmr crew as well uh, for a superb job on this call we get a little monday morning monday morning quarterback from outside the area uh, we'll talk about my uh, Spokane life at some other point on the podcast. But thanks, Noah, for joining us. Thanks for taking great care of our patient and an outcome that I surely didn't expect. As always, we appreciate everybody out there who's listening. Please send us feedback, ideas for future podcasts to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. We appreciate five-star reviews. Or tell us how we can make the podcast better, and then leave us a five-star review. Have a great day. Stay warm out there. Don't slip on the ice. We'll talk to everybody again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.